Uh, good morning, church family. We're going to be continuing our series through the book of Genesis. So if you remember last week, we were in Genesis chapter 28, and kind of where we left off was that uh, Jacob was fleeing from his brother Esau. Uh, Jacob had stolen the birthright, and, and he had deceived his father Isaac to, to cheat his brother Esau out of the blessing. And because of that, Esau was really angry with him. And so Isaac and Rebekah decided to send Jacob to his uncle Laban uh, in Padan Aram, which is about 500 miles away, uh, mainly to flee Esau, but also to go and to find a wife. And so on his way there, he encountered God the first time God promised. Jacob said, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to bring you back to this land. I'm going to bring you back to Beersheba. And so kind of what happens to catch you up on where we're going to be today in chapters 29 to 31, Jacob arrives, meets his uncle Laban, ends up working for his uncle Laban for 20 years. During that time, he marries Leah and Rachel. Uh, he's uh, By the time he's ready to leave his uncle Laban, he's got 12 uh, sons already. And uh, But Jacob and Laban had a strenuous relationship. Uh, uh, Laban, kind of a lot like Jacob, was also kind of a deceiver. Uh, they were always one-upping each other. Laban was trying to cheat Jacob out of his wages, and Jacob was trying to you know, be crafty and figure out how to, how to work around Laban. And it got to a point where things boiled over. Uh, Jacob began to fear uh, Laban and, and really felt like Laban was turning sour on him. Uh, and then after about 20 years, um, uh, one night, uh, God met with Jacob and told Jacob, it's time for you to go back to Beersheba. And so Jacob decided to, without telling Laban, he decided to flee with his entire family. After 20 years, uh, he leaves Laban and he is now on his way back to Beersheba uh, with uh, his wives and all of his children. Uh, but Jacob has a dilemma. Because remember who's in Beersheba. That's right. Esau is in Beersheba. And that's a problem because the last time that Jacob saw Esau, Esau wanted to murder him. Uh, and Jacob hasn't forgotten. And he's on his way back. And so he sends messengers ahead of him to go and tell Esau, hey, just want to let you know, it's me, Jacob. I'm coming back. And, you know, I think really Jacob was kind of wanting to feel this thing out. And, you know, how is Esau going to react? And uh, he gets some news from the messengers that really, really ramps up um, his fear. Before I read that, I, I want to point out, like one of the, uh, a couple of the themes that we see coming up over and over again in Jacob's life to this point, all the way from, you know, chapters 25, all the way to chapter uh, 31, uh, there's two themes. Number one, the theme of deception. He, he's constantly trying to scheme and maneuver and deceive his way into getting what he wants and to coming out on top. And the second thing is the fear of man. Jacob is constantly afraid. We see the, the word afraid coming up over and over as you read through this narrative. He's afraid of Esau originally. Uh, he flees Esau to go to Laban. Then he's afraid of, of his uncle Laban uh, in chapter 31. And so he you know flees kind of in the middle of the night without telling him. Uh, and uh, now we're going to see uh, Jacob once again be overcome with fear. So listen to Genesis 32 verses 6 and 7. So after the messengers return. Um, the messengers return to Jacob uh, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. 
Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. So Jacob gets the news that, hey, your brother Esau heard you're coming and he's got 400 men with him and he's coming out to meet you. Jacob's immediately, immediate thought is, uh-oh, I'm in big trouble because last time I saw Esau, he was really upset at me and so surely Esau is coming to kill me. Uh, and it's really kind of, uh, you know, the next thing that he does uh, it says that he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. So it's like classic Jacob here in this reaction. He's dividing up the, the men into two camps. Uh, his first instinct is like, what can I do to fix this? How can I scheme and maneuver to try to get myself out of this situation? Now, Esau's dilemma here is not unlike ours. When we're afraid to trust God, what often happens is we resort to self-reliance, just like Jacob does. Remember, God told Jacob back in Genesis 28, he said, I will be with you and I will bring you back to this land. That's what we talked about all, you know, uh, for the majority of the sermon last week. Jacob knows that, but he's still afraid. It's not enough to know God's promises. We need to act on faith in them. But too often, like Jacob, we tend to resort to our own plans and schemes, don't we? This is very clearly demonstrated in our prayerlessness in our lives. Scripture repeatedly calls us to trust in God by praying and waiting on Him rather than relying on ourselves. Romans 12, 12. Be constant in prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 says, Pray without ceasing. Psalm 88, 1 says, Oh God, I cry out day and night before you. Prayer is an act of faith because prayer by its very nature is an admission of our weakness and our need for God. It's a refusal to resort to incessant scheming and planning and a commitment to wait upon God to act. But too often, we don't even bother to pray when we're making decisions. Or if we do pray, we don't wait on God long enough to, for an answer. And we'll you know, throw up a prayer and then we'll do things our own way anyways. And just think about all the decisions that you make on a daily basis without ever praying about them. Responding to a rude comment on social media or, or a, an email without praying about it. Entering into a dating relationship without praying and waiting on the Lord about it. Picking a degree program or a career path or a new job without praying and waiting on the Lord about it. Moving into a new home without praying about it. Trying to read your Bible and understand it without praying about it and waiting on the Lord. Yes, sometimes, you know, maybe even oftentimes the obligatory prayer is lifted up, but I'm, I'm not talking about just like saying our prayers before we eat a meal. I'm talking about, I'm talking about desperate prayer, the kind that says, God, I need you in this situation. Apart from you, 
I can do nothing. I desperately need your help. I desperately need your wisdom. I can't make a decision to buy this house without you. I cannot make a decision to enter into a dating relationship if I don't know it's from you. God, I need to hear from you. I'm talking about that type of praying. How often are you praying about like that in the everyday decisions that you're making in your life? You know, from whether they're small decisions or big decisions, when we don't pray like that, we're telling God, I've got this. I've got this. Our prayerlessness betrays our prideful self-sufficiency. And when you make frequent decisions without seeking God, you're going to end up making a mess of things. It's no wonder that our anxiety is so high that we fear man so much, that we struggle so much to hear the voice of God and to know when he's leading us. We don't take time to wrestle with God in prayer. And prayerlessness is also a, a sin. A consistent lack of persevering prayer in our lives is a symptom of the deeper underlying problem of unbelief. Andrew Murray was a, uh, a pastor and uh, an author in South Africa in the 1800s, wrote a lot on prayer. He said, prayer is the pulse of spiritual life. The sin of prayerlessness is a proof for the ordinary Christian or minister that the life of God in the soul is in deadly sickness and weakness. So he's basically saying like, like look, our prayer life, is an indicator of our spiritual health. Now, we can try to cover it up with excuses, but it dishonors God when we rely on ourselves instead of coming to Him in prayer. And not only is prayer, prayerlessness a sin, it's a detriment to, our, to, to us. It, we, we hurt our, ourselves when we don't pray. God has given us the gift of prayer for our own good. Prayer is not a religious duty to be completed during your day. It's how you commune with God. It's, it's how you have a relationship with Him. It's how you get help from Him. Uh, John Piper uses uh, this analogy. He says that prayer is not a room service intercom. It's a wartime walkie-talkie. Right? Prayer is how we call down help from God. We're in the midst of a spiritual war. It's not something that we just use whenever it's convenient or whenever we want something. No, prayer is our lifeline. Like we were, we were saved God saved us and reconciled us to Him so that we could have a relationship with Him. Prayer is the medium through which we converse with God. And Jacob had been spending most of his life scheming up and cooking up ways to come out on top without God. And what we see here in Genesis 32 is that he's finally hit the end of the road. Like he's met his match. There's really no way out of this situation for him, no matter what he you know, tries to concoct. He can't scheme his way through this, because if he's going to go back to Beersheba to receive God's promise to him and God's blessing, he's going to have to trust God. And so in verses 9 to 12, he finally calls out to God in prayer. And he proceeds to spend a night wrestling with God alone as he spends this sleepless night trying to gain assurance that God will help him. Um, really, if, if I could summarize the main point of this sermon in one sentence, it would be this. 
The road from self-reliant to God-dependence is paved with persevering prayer. The road from self-reliance to God-dependence is paved with persevering prayer. I I want us to spend the rest of our time looking at how to persevere in prayer, and then we'll, we'll close by looking at some of the blessings of persevering prayer that are seen in this passage. So we're going to read, and then we'll draw out some lessons as we go. So I'm going to read verses 9 to 12, and then we're going to skip down to verse 22 and go to the end of the chapter. So again, this is Genesis chapter 32, and I'm going to start in verse 9. So uh, again, we're picking up. Jacob has just heard the report that uh, Esau is coming with 400 men. Uh, He, you know, first kind of panics and decides to split the camp in two, and then he drops to his knees. And here's what he prays. He says, Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. All right, so, so far, so good. But Jacob still uh, doesn't have all of that self-reliance out of his system. Because in verses 13 to 21, he comes up with a plan to butter Esau up. He sends multiple droves of livestock as gifts on ahead of him. Like, so there's going to be like a first wave of gifts that's supposed to come to Esau. And, and then after that, another wave and another wave. And Jacob's kind of thinking maybe this will be a way to appease him. And in fact, in verse 20, uh, it says, it says uh, that Jacob thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. But even his plan doesn't give him complete peace. So Jacob decides to spend the night alone seeking assurance from God, and it comes in a strange way. Let's pick back up, and actually in verse 24. It says, And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. 
All right, so to recap, Jacob encounters a man who begins to wrestle with him in the middle of the night. It's okay if you if that sounds a little bit weird to you because let's just be honest, it kind of is weird. <laughs> like all of a sudden, like Jacob's just camping out and a man comes and starts wrestling with him. And while Jacob doesn't necessarily know that it's the Lord at first, he clearly does know that by the time that he asks for a blessing. Even though Jacob held his own in this wrestling match, he acknowledges that he's the inferior one by asking for a blessing. And by the end of the story, by the end of the chapter, Jacob is in awe as he realizes he's been wrestling with God. He says, I've seen God face to face. So what can we learn about how to persevere in prayer in this passage? Well, the first thing we can learn is that we need to pray with desperation. Uh, Carrie, uh, our worship leader, uh, he and I, we, we usually we meet up uh, in the week leading up to Sunday and we'll just go over the passage together and talk about it. And, and we were talking about this passage and one of the things that he, he pointed out that I thought was just a really great insight is that, you know, really he said the main difference between Jacob now in chapter 32 and Jacob in chapter 28 is he's desperate. He's desperate. That's the main difference. I mean, think about it. In chapter 28, Jacob wasn't looking for God. And this time, Jacob seeks God out in prayer. In chapter 28, Jacob is busy scheming. This time, Jacob calls out for help in prayer. He realizes that his scheming isn't enough. We won't truly persevere in prayer until we're desperate, until we are convinced that we are powerless on our own. As long as prayerlessness is in your life, it shows that there is still a part of you, despite what you say, that believes that you can get along without God. When you're lacking in desperation in prayer, one possible reason is that you either aren't aware of how high the stakes truly are, or you've just forgotten I mean, do you, do you realize the intensity of the spiritual warfare that's going on around you? Do you realize that Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour? Do you realize the immensity of eternity? Like the fact that every single person all around you, all the people that you pass on the street, all the people in your family are going to live forever either separated in God from God in eternal torment and hell or with God in eternal bliss reconciled to him in the new heavens and the new earth like do you understand the immensity of eternity the intensity of the spiritual warfare do you understand the stakes when you're not focused on the kingdom of God and, and when you're distracted with the stuff that's going to pass away, your life will be marked with prayerlessness because there won't be an urgency to pray because you're not thinking about the things of heaven. You're, you're so lost in the sauce of, of what's going on in this world that you're not really bothering with it. It's kind of like, you know, Jesus talks about the, the parable of the, the seed being sown in the four soils. And one of the seed falls uh, among the thorns and it's choked out by the cares and the worries of this world. That's the kind of seed that has a prayerless life. And my prayer for you is that you'll see that nothing is more important than the kingdom of God 
and that apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. You can't afford to be prayerless. You need to get desperate in prayer. We as a church need to be get desperate in prayer. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but one of the things that I see that has marked the church in large part in recent days is prayerlessness because we think we can get by without God. We think that our large buildings, we think that our budgets, we think that our programs, we think that our performances on Sunday morning, we don't need God to draw people into our buildings. We don't need God to put butts in seats. We can get along fine without God. And it, it, might, it might give the appearance that there's something happening. It might give the appearance that there, that there are people coming to churches, that there's life, but it is surface level life. It's like, you know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he says some build their house with materials of gold and silver and some with wood and hay and straw. It's building with straw. It's building with hay when we're building on a prayerless foundation. Whether that's the church as a whole or whether that's us in our individual lives. I pray that you will <laughs> that you'll leave wherever it is that you're watching this sermon this morning, that you'll get up from your seat this morning desperate in a way that you've never been before as you realize like the stakes like I wish I could come through the camera and help you see like just how real this is like pray with desperation secondly pray with dependence pray with dependence now maybe you're wondering when you read this passage why couldn't God defeat Jacob like what's up with that how did Jacob hold his own if he was wrestling with God? Well, clearly, God could have easily subdued Jacob. And we know that because towards the end of the wrestling match, he just touches his hip and it goes out of socket. I don't know if you've ever, like, dislocated a joint. Like, even, like, dislocating a finger is extremely painful. And your hip joint is the largest joint in your body. Like, it takes a lot of force to dislocate a hip. And it's really, really painful. So obviously it wasn't because God couldn't subdue Jacob. He permitted Jacob to stay in the fight. It's kind of like a, like a father wrestling with his toddler son on the ground, right? And, they, and they're play fighting and, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're wrestling. And, um, you know, I was, uh, one of, uh, Thomas, uh, those of you who aren't part of our church, one of our other pastors, uh, Thomas has a, a four-year-old named Truett. And I was watching him play with Truett not too long ago. And, and Truett, you know, punched Thomas. Uh, and Thomas pretended to be wounded. You know, he was like, oh, like that. And uh, was was he actually wounded? Um, I hope not. If so, we need to get that brother a gym membership. But uh, the, the point is that God is the one who supplies us the, the strength to be able to wrestle with him in prayer. God is the one who supplies us the strength to be able to wrestle with him in prayer. Persevering prayer is not easy. There are numerous forces that are stronger than we are. Like First, the devil opposes us. You know, the fiercest fighting happens on the most important part of the battlefield. No wonder... The fight to pray is one of the hardest. Why is it so hard? Because Satan is more than happy for Christians to have church services, do events, go to Bible studies, all that stuff, if he can keep us from praying. Because prayer is where the power is. 
Satan knows that our only power comes from God. We can do all the activity we want under the sun, and it won't make a lick of a difference if we are not depending on God for everything, if we're not calling out to Him in prayer. And not only does the devil oppose us, but the flesh opposes us. There's a battle between the flesh and the spirit. Our flesh wants to indulge self and and default towards spiritual laziness. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 5 urges us to walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. But that's not always so easy, is it? Especially when it comes to prayer. Many of you may be discouraged from this battle to persevere in prayer. You know prayerlessness is a sin, but you keep failing. You keep falling over and over. Over and over, you've made new plans, started a new prayer journal, you've made resolutions, you've made promises to God, but it doesn't last. You endure for a little while, and then you fall off the wagon. Am I talking to anybody right now? Am I the only one that's had that difficulty? It could be incredibly discouraging. Maybe you've even uh, had the thought cross through your mind before. It's a sinister thought. It's put there by the devil. But maybe this has come across your mind before. You know, if I was really a Christian, I, I sh- then shouldn't I be able to persevere in prayer better than I can? Like, can't real Christians persevere in prayer? Maybe you've even given up on ever having a consistent prayer life. The reason that this happens is because you are taking your eyes off of Jesus and you're putting them on yourself. Sin corrupts everything. We can even make prayer a work of our own strength. So if you're battling prayerlessness, you need to recognize that the grace to wrestle with God in prayer comes from God. Romans 8.26 puts it like this. It says, The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He helps us in our weakness. God's not asking you to be a strong prayer. He's asking you as a weak Christian to depend on Him and to lean into His strength. The Spirit of Jesus dwells in you, and He wants to help you pray. He will give you victory in prayer. Uh, I want to quote Andrew Murray again, the pastor and uh, author uh, in South Africa from the 1800s. And uh, he said, this is what he said on what Jesus would say to the Christian struggling to persevere in prayer. So picture this as Jesus saying this to you if you're struggling to persevere in prayer. You cannot pray. You feel that all is cold and dark. Why not give yourself over into my hands? Only believe that I am ready to help you in prayer. I long greatly to shed my love abroad in your heart so that you, in the consciousness of weakness, may confidently rely on me to bestow the grace of prayer. Just as I will cleanse you from all other sins, so also I will deliver you from the sin of prayerlessness. Only do not seek the victory in your own strength. So one of the things I don't want you to do in response 
to this message today is come away and go, okay, I feel guilty because I haven't been praying, so I need to try harder to pray more. Um, if that's what you come away with, then uh, you've then I've done a poor job, honestly, of explaining this text uh, and of preaching. Uh, there's a huge difference uh, between trying to do this in the flesh and trying to do this in God's strength. <clears throat> I tried to think about like how can I help. Uh, you guys see like practically what's the what's the difference look like between praying in the flesh and relying on God between between persevering in prayer in our own strength and in God's strength and the best way that I can describe it is this stop thinking about how you wish you could pray longer or better how you can do that and coming up with plans and you know like all that stuff don't focus on praying focus on Jesus Okay. I think a lot of times that's where we get, where we miss. We start focusing on the medium and we miss the point. The whole point of prayer is Christ. The whole point of prayer is communion with him. So take your eyes off of praying and getting better at praying and put them on Jesus. Jesus is a person to be sought and known and communed with, as is the Holy Spirit. He's not a force to be tapped into. Prayer is seeking the face of a person. It's communing with a person. It's a relationship. So as you approach prayer, as you approach Jesus in prayer, believe that the Spirit of Jesus dwells inside of you and wants to help you pray. Jesus said in John 14, 20 to the disciples, He said, On that day you will know that I am in my Father, you are in me, and I am in you. Believe that you that he will help you pray, and then seek him. One one uh, just practical thing you can do is if you haven't done done this already is pray with an open Bible. Prayer is a two way conversation. Let God speak to you through His Word. Pray Scripture back to God. Pr- express praise and petition back to Him in response to what you've read in His Word. We need to pray with desperation. We need to pray with dependence on God's strength. And then lastly, we need to pray with diligence. We need to pray with diligence. So Jacob wrestled with God with tenacity in prayer here. I mean, even after his hip is dislocated in verse 26, he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. Some of God's blessings do not come except in response to persevering prayer. And this is all over Scripture. There's examples of this. Uh, Elijah persisted in praying for uh, a drought, first of all, and then for three and a half years it didn't rain, and then he prayed. He persisted in praying for the drought to end and for rain to come. Hannah persisted in praying for a son, and then ultimately God gave her Samuel. Jesus tells two parables in the book of Luke that are devoted specifically to telling us that we ought to persevere in prayer and not give up. The early church in Acts, in Acts 1.14, says that they devoted themselves to prayer. The psalmist consistently, like the psalm I read earlier, Psalm 88.1, Day and night I cry out to you, O God, in prayer. And too often we pray about something, but we don't wait long enough for an answer. We live in a fast food microwave society where we don't want to wait. 
We're far too quick to check out if God doesn't answer right away. Let me encourage you to persevere in prayer. Um, and just practically, a couple of ways that you can do that. Um, I think, you know, Jacob kind of, uh, you know, shows a good example here in verse 24. Just get alone with God and in a quiet place. I mean, right there at the start of verse 24, it says, the first words, Jacob was left alone. Jacob was left alone. You notice that both times Jacob has this uh, kind of life-altering encounter with God in chapter 28 and in chapter 32, he's alone and in the wilderness. Both times. Diligence in prayer will not happen without setting aside a specific time and place. I understand that you're busy. I understand that lots of people are busy, although many of us aren't as busy as we were before. And because we're busy, I, you know, I have met Christians oftentimes who will say, uh, you know, like I'm, I, I, I'm committed to my prayer life, but, you know, I try to just do it, you know, uh, as I go. Or, you know, I, I pray without ceasing and, uh, you know, or I'll, I'll pray, you know, kind of when I'm on the, the car, in the car on the way to work and, and things like that. And, and I get that and that's a good thing, but I want to urge you uh, strongly uh, and, and just, uh, I guess, um, just propose to you that you will not be able to truly be diligent in prayer without getting alone and in a quiet place on a consistent basis. It's just not going to happen. It's going to take sacrifice. It's likely going to mean waking up earlier, maybe saying no to other things. But we always make time for what we prioritize most. We always do. I mean, it's amazing how early we'll wake up to catch a flight for vacation or how early we'll wake up to go to the gym to get in shape for the summer, isn't it? We'll make time for what we prioritize. Are you convinced that you desperately need God's help? Like, are you, and are you convinced that there is nothing sweeter and nothing better than communion with God and knowing Him? If the answer is yes, then set aside a specific time and a quiet place to be alone with God. We also need to persevere in prayer together, not just alone, but together. The church in Acts devoted themselves to prayer in chapter 1. In fact, before, right before he ascended, Jesus told the apostles to wait for power from on high before he sent them out to be his witnesses. And so they waited and they prayed and they waited for God to pour out his Holy Spirit upon them. I mean, what makes us think that we are prepared to help people know Jesus and make him known if we are not filled with power from on high, if we are not waiting for God in prayer, we can. We're powerless to accomplish that mission. We need to devote ourselves to the most important work, which is prayer. Um, one of the things that we're doing, this, this isn't necessarily an official Pillar DC thing, but some of the members from Pillar DC have started gathering on Friday mornings uh, from 6 to 7 a.m. in different homes. Um, and uh, we're just praying together and we're calling out to God for revival. And uh, I would encourage you to consider joining us. It's been a sweet time. We're in group, we're in less than 10 people uh, at each group. 
uh, and we've got a little sign up to make sure that we don't have more than 10 people. But if you're interested in joining us for that, then reach out to us, reach out to me and message me, leave a comment. Uh, if you wanna get sent the sign up link, then we can send you the sign up link uh, if that's something you'd be interested in joining. Now, maybe you're wondering, you know, why is it that God wants us to persevere in prayer anyways? Like, why won't God just answer our prayer? Why did God wrestle with Jacob? Well, I really think the, the answer comes down to this. God is more interested in changing you than your circumstances. God is more interested in changing you than your circumstances. When we think about the blessings of persevering in prayer, there's several blessings that, that come to Jacob from persevering in prayer here. You know, Jacob came to God in prayer, and his primary concern was his fear of Esau. Jacob left with two blessings that he didn't expect, a new name and a new limp. His new name was a permanent reminder of God's grace. Look again at verse 27 and 28. Uh, it says that um, it's, he said to him, the Lord said to Jacob, what is your name? And, and he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. So what's going on here? Well, by asking Jacob his name, the Lord was asking Jacob to confess, really. I mean, remember, Jacob's name means deceiver. So right around this time, Jacob is, it's dawning on him that this is the Lord that he's dealing with. And realizing it is that it's the Lord, Jacob has to admit, I'm the deceiver. But instead of condemnation, the Lord responds in a surprising way. He says, not anymore, you're not. You're not the deceiver anymore. Now you are Israel. And the meaning of Israel is debated, but, but most scholars believe it, it means either that God contends or one who strives with God. So in other words, like God contends on behalf of Jacob or, um, or, one who, or, or one who strives with or clings to God. The bottom line is that Jacob is no longer a deceiver who tries to scheme his own way, but one who clings to God. He's been given a new identity. He's been given a new nature. I want to take the opportunity to ask you, do you know God like this? Have you encountered God like this, like Jacob does here in this passage? Now, this scene is such a wonderful picture of the gospel and the new birth. Like Jacob, you too need to come to terms with the holiness of God. He made you. You are accountable to Him. And you have sinned against Him. But like Jacob, if you will confess your sinfulness to Him and your transgression to Him, you will be met with grace. The reason for this is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. The wages of sin is death. Every person deserves to die and to spend eternity separated from God in hell forever because of our wicked rebellion. But God loves us so much that He gave His one and only Son. Jesus is the sacrificial Lamb who died in your place. He took the punishment 
that we deserve. And after three days, Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus died and rose so that you could have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But more than that, so that you could have a relationship with God, so that you could talk to God in prayer. Just like Jacob, when you trust in Jesus, he gives you a new name. Those of us who've trusted in Jesus, we are no longer slaves to sin. We are sons and daughters of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he who knew no sin, which is Jesus, became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. He gives us a new identity, a new identity, just like he gave to Jacob here. So what should you do? What do I do? Repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, is what Scripture tells us. If you'd like to make the decision to do that, I'd encourage you to make that decision. Call upon God right now. Repent of your sin and call upon God and trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation. And please message us and fill out the Connect card and let us know, that that digital Connect card in the description, let us know so that we can help you take these next steps, so that we can help you take the step of baptism and begin to follow Jesus in discipleship. We would love to help you do that, no matter where you are. Jacob left this encounter with God with a new name, and Jacob also left with something else. He left with a new limp. While his new name was a permanent reminder of God's grace, his new limp was a permanent reminder of God's strength and of his weakness. Look at verse 31. It says that the sun rose upon him as he passed, Penuel, limping because of his hip. God will often allow us to be afflicted with weaknesses, to walk with a limp, so that we are even more dependent upon him in prayer. Isn't it interesting that Jacob is heading towards Esau with 400 men coming at him, and he's now weaker physically than he was before the night began? And he went to God in prayer, and in, on the surface, it almost looks like God has stacked the deck against him even more. Like now he's weaker. I mean, if anything, he's more vulnerable now than before, physically. But the difference is that he's not relying on his strength anymore, but on God's. What about you? Maybe the weakness you are so frustrated with is a limp God has given you as a persistent reminder of your weakness and his strength. Love... 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul uh, is recounting uh, the, the difficulties that, that they endured while they were taking the gospel um, to different peoples. And he said, uh, at one point, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So Paul's like, things had gotten so bad, it felt like we had a death sentence. We were just, I mean, everything you could think of was going wrong. We were so weak. We were beyond despair. But 
that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He saw God's sovereign hand even in the midst of those afflictions, even in the midst of that, midst of that limp. And one thing I hope you'll realize from this passage is that God doesn't call us to wrestle in prayer because he's reluctant to bless us. He's not reluctant to bless us. In fact, he's very eager to bless his children. John Bloom is a, a pastor and an author, and he wrote, he, was, uh, he wrote something reflecting on this passage, Genesis 32. And, and he said, basically, he said that, you know, it's, it's through wrestling in prayer that God forced Jacob out of his fearful preoccupation with Esau and forced him to focus on God. And you see that? And Jacob went from like thinking about and concocting plans. What am I going to do about Esau? He's got 400 men. Maybe I can do this. Maybe I can do that. And then God, God says, Jacob, come over here. And he locks him in a wrestling match of prayer. And now Jacob all night is focused on the face of God. He's been seeing God face to face right there, right? He's wrestling with him. That's why God draws us into persevering prayers to take our eyes off of the wind and the waves of your circumstances and off the anxiety and fix them on Jesus. There's a reason that he draws that out. There's a reason that we need to tarry in prayer because, again, the, the purpose is not to get what you want. It's not to get the answer. It's to get God. Like God wants to give you so much, something so much better than just answers. Like Prayer is not a room service intercom. Prayer is not a room service intercom. It's the means by which you are able to commune with God. And that's how prayer takes us from self-reliance to God dependence. That's how prayer takes us from being fearful to faith-filled. The road from self-reliance to God dependence is paved with persevering prayer. If you're afraid to forge ahead and trust in God, let me urge you to take it to God in prayer. Wrestle with Him and tell Him, I won't let go until you bless me. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the privilege of prayer. Oh God, may you make us desperate. Desperate to seek you. May Pillar DC be a church that takes hold of you, that grasps hold of you, God, and says, we won't let go until you bless us. We won't let go until you pour your spirit out from on high. God, we need you to do everything. God, apart from you, we can do nothing. We can't save a single person. We can't change a single life. We can't even open the Bible and read it and understand it unless you help us. Oh God, please make us desperate in prayer. Please make me desperate in prayer. God, may we, may we cast aside the sins that so easily entangle us. May we cast aside the distractions that so easily keep us from you. God, may you give us a hunger and a thirst for your presence like nothing else. May we yearn for you and desire you. Like Psalm 63 says, Oh God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. May that be the cry of our hearts. God, please do it for your name's sake and for your glory. Revive your church. Revive our souls. Revive our spirits. Do a great thing in the midst of this pandemic, oh God. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.